You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. 8 to 42, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, and that's on page 859, 859. Let me just pray for our reading this morning. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us. Go the second mile. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist the evildoer. On the contrary, If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I just want to say hi to everyone who's joining in with us on Zoom. I know there's a number of you this morning who couldn't be here, so great to have you, not with us, I guess, but in spirit at least, so thank you. Um, Praise God for making that way open to us um, to be able to, uh, yeah, Uh, have people gather with us even if they can't be here in person. So I'm wondering, um, how do you respond when someone offends you? Looking at you, Gee. What happens in your heart when someone insults you? You morons. (laughs) I was offended yesterday. I was in the car with my family. Renee was driving and we were heading out to her mum's 75th birthday party out in uh, God's own country in Coddles Bridge. And uh, we'd only been going a couple of minutes when we were offended, insulted, just down here at the end of Commercial Road in that merge at the lights and Renee was merging into the, from the right lane into the single lane and someone kind of kept coming up the side, up the side, up the side until we were about to run them off the road. Just a little incy-witsy little car but pulled in front of us and then the window went down and the finger went up. I was insulted by that Somebody giving my wife the finger is insulting. Didn't appreciate it at all. Uh, But I didn't return the favour. I did not respond in kind. I did not give them the finger back. I wouldn't do that. Instead, I laughed, laughed at them. But here's what was going on in my heart. Didn't retaliate. 
didn't swear, didn't yell, didn't make any obscene gestures. But in my heart, as we approached the next set of lights, I was praying that that guy would get out of his car and want to make something more of it. I was praying for that. I would love to have put him back in his car. That's what I was feeling, just being honest with you. That's what was going on in my mind. I kept playing it over every time we came up to a stop. I was hoping for it. He gave us the finger. I was going to give him the whole fist. That just came to me then. I realize that that's a pretty lame thing to say. But that's what was going on in my mind. Right? And so, even though I didn't respond in kind, I failed the heart test. This is what we've been learning from Jesus over these weeks. I failed the heart test, which is the most important test. I've never murdered anyone, but Jesus says, yes, you'd be angry at someone. I've never slept with someone who's not my wife, but Jesus said, yes, but you've lusted after another woman. I keep failing these heart tests. This is what Jesus is going to address once again. We have said this from the beginning, really this whole section that we've been in for about six weeks, where he, he begins in verse 17, talking about how he hasn't come to abolish the law. He's not here saying, you used to have the Old Testament, but now this is something new and better. He's not... Um, contradicting the law what he's saying is not the antithesis of the law rather he is rightly interpreting the law for us he says none of that law is going to disappear I'm not doing away with any of it I'm simply showing you both how I fulfill that law in the way that I live and I'm rightly interpreting it for you because for generations now your religious leaders have been leading you astray messing it all up making it more about externalities rather than what's going on in the heart. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us how he's going to fulfill the law by interpreting it for us. He tells us again about how the, the, the righteousness of his followers is going to exceed the Pharisees. Even at their level of zeal to, to, to keep the law, the righteousness of his followers, you and I, are going to exceed the, of the Pharisees because it's going to be rooted in our hearts and not just in externalities. And that's what he's going to be talking about again. We saw this in, with, with the issue of anger. We saw it with the issue of lust and adultery. We saw it with the issue of divorce and marriage. Now he's going to talk about... Uh, oh, last week we talked about... Um, truth-telling and honesty, yes be yes, and now he's going to talk about how do you respond when you're offended, when you're insulted? What does true righteousness look like in that situation? Remember what righteousness is? We define this from the beginning. We'll just keep going over and over it because this is key to everything he's saying. Righteousness, to be righteous, is whole person heart deep behavior that accords with God's nature and will and kingdom there is a rhythm that God has set in the universe that reflects is is consonant with his own heart 
his nature, his will, his kingdom. Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is among you. Now here's how you live in that kingdom in a way that echoes the rhythm of God's own kingdom heart. Whole person, heart deep. So what's that look like when it comes to retaliation? Check it out. This is what he says in verse 38 of chapter 5. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is, uh, if you want to sound fancy and probably a little bit pretentious, you can uh, tell your friends that this is called the Lex Talionis. And uh, it's the law of retaliation. And this is not just a, an old covenant law. This is probably the oldest law that we know of. The oldest law that we have recorded. We have records of this law, Lex Talionis, the, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the law of retaliation, back 2,000 years BC. Ancient law. The law of retaliation. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And the purpose of this law, even though it sounds a little bit archaic and and maybe a little bit brutal to our ears, the, the purpose of it is actually to curb retribution. It's to moderate retaliation. So the first purpose of it is to Administer justice rightly. You will know that uh, insult and um, injury can escalate in terms of retribution and retaliation. If you have kids, you know this intimately, right? You go downstairs, one of them has like is missing handfuls of hair, the other one's bleeding from both ears, and you're like, what happened here? And it turns out like somebody insulted somebody's teddy bear or something. But you know, like, he insulted the teddy bear, so I took out his teeth, and then he, like, it just escalates very quickly. I remember one time when I was a kid, uh, I was playing basketball with my older brother, Benjamin, and I, he shot an air ball, right, completely missed the ring, so I, obviously, it's my duty to tease him, and make him feel terrible so he picked up the ball and threw it at my head so hard I could still feel the sting of it it knocked me off my feet and into a big pile of wood chips I was down for a while and then so I went and got a BB gun and shot him in the neck (laughs) it's just how it was in the olden days And this is what the law is designed to curb against, right? It's easy to to laugh when we think about kids doing it, but this is like at the heart of every, every bit of tribal warfare that we see, not just in ancient times, but today. If, you know, talk to Elizabeth about what's going on in South Sudan at the moment. It's escalating brutality. So this law was designed to prevent that. If you kill my cow, I don't then go and kill your son. That's not equitable. 
Instead, you are to take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? It's restitution rather than retribution. You see this in a few places. You see it in Exodus. You see it in Leviticus 24. Made it very plain. If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. Again, this sounds kind of archaic to us, but it's actually the real foundation for all of our laws in Western civilization. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm told you can sort of trace everything back to this central kind of idea. The idea of equitable restitution. Now, the other thing you need to note, not, not only is it kind of um, set out in terms of like a, a curb against excess, but it's, it's set out not to be uh, adhered to by individuals. This is not something that neighbor meets out against neighbor. It's not something that we try and handle on our own. God set it out to be adjudicated by judges. There's a whole court system, again, that our court system is kind of an echo of or has been built on the foundation of, but this was not just something that you you give to the community to sort out among themselves. God put in place hierarchy and leadership to see that this was done well. So Deuteronomy 19, again, makes this really clear. If a malicious witness testifies against someone accusing them of a crime, right? False witness. This happened on Good Friday, you remember this? The two people in the dispute are to stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and judges in authority at that time. The judges are to make a careful investigation and if the witness turns out to be a liar who has falsely accused his brother, you must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from you. Then everyone else will hear and be afraid and they will never again do anything evil like this among you. Next verse, verse 21, do not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Again there, do not show pity is another way of saying do not show partiality. Just because this is a rich guy and he did it to a slave doesn't mean anything. Everyone is, is equal before the law. Everyone needs to be shown the same level of justice. So it's set out, from ancient times, set out as a means of sorting these disputes out and in a way that doesn't escalate to bloodletting and violence. And Jesus comes along and says, let's read 38 and 39 together. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Hmm. For the 50th time, In a few paragraphs, we hear what Jesus says here, and the response just has to be, what? 
Really? Does he really mean this? Don't resist an evildoer? Really? Like, don't resist evil? Don't resist a child abuser? Don't resist a kid in Texas who has a gun and is walking through a school shooting kids? I I read this morning about this kind of outrage that the police didn't respond as soon as they could have to stop that kid from shooting out the school. It's outrageous that the response wasn't swift. Jesus seems to be saying, don't make any response. Don't resist evil. Like, don't resist the evil one. Don't resist the devil. I screwed up last week, remember, in the middle of the sermon, I was just like, stop, we need to pray. God, please bind the devil in this room. Shouldn't have done that. I'm kind of annoyed this morning because Saturday night, last week, at about 8 o'clock, my son suddenly got hit with this fever. His temperature went up 40 plus. I've got, my wife's a paramedic, so I'm never too worried about this. I'm only worried when she starts getting worried, okay? So, and she, she was, like, concerned at how quickly his temperature had spiked and how he was now, like, suffering from chills and whatever. So they didn't come to church the next morning. Last night, the exact same thing happened to my daughter. At about the same time, with the same results, 40 plus degree temperature and chills. So they're home again today. Now, I'm not someone who kind of sees the devil behind every bush, but that kind of thing, I just, I just, I I just think he's kind of behind that kind of thing, preventing me from being able to worship with my wife and kids. So I respond to that by praying, Lord God, please deliver us from the evil one. This seems to say, no, actually, don't resist him. This is really important for us to get our heads around. Because we can be led down all kinds of interesting and potentially destructive paths if we don't understand this. First of all, we ought never build a doctrine on a verse. My friend has this great kind of bumper sticker. He's, He's like, never read a Bible verse. And what he means is, don't ever just pluck a verse out of context and say this obviously means that I should do this or that God is like this or that we should be this. Instead, always read things in context, right? That's, you would do it with any other book. The same is true of the Bible. It's not just like a dictionary where you can look up one word and you've got your answer. This is a story that hangs together and this is a narrative written beautifully and brilliantly that we need to understand as a whole. Now, we kind of work against this because we break it up into 20 parts and run a series through three chapters that takes half the year. Because we have to, there's so much in it, but the danger is that we isolate verses and take them out of context. 
So first of all, we need to understand that this teaching of Jesus, as sublime as it is, is part of a bigger story, right? We need to know the whole counsel of God. Some people call themselves red-letter Christians because in my Bible, like the, the words of Jesus are in red, and so they're somehow better or more elevated. In some churches, they stay seated for the Old Testament reading and the epistle reading. But they stand for the gospel reading. And this is unhelpful. All of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is inspired by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. So whatever he's saying here needs to be taken together with what he's saying in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And everything else. So with that in mind, well, is he saying that I shouldn't resist the devil? Oh, no, he can't be saying that. Of course not. His brother James says that we should resist the devil and he will flee from us. Or we just look at the life of Jesus. The best interpretation of what Jesus says is in the life that he lives. And you'll see over and over again this standing up to injustice, standing up to that which opposes the kingdom of God. So read it within, read this within the whole council of scripture. This is why, guys, this is why we've got to keep learning our Bibles, keep reading our Bibles, keep discussing our Bibles. It also really helps to know the specific original context that whatever this passage, whatever passage you're reading, was delivered in. Like, what did the first hearers of this hear? What did they, how would they have received it? What was the intention of the person who was saying it, Jesus, and the person who was writing it, Matthew? What, what, what's going on there? And if we look into this original context, we can see there's more to this than maybe meets the eye. So again, let's see verse 39. He says, But I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. The right cheek. This is something we won't get because we don't live in first century Palestine. But here's what's going on here, right? It specifically mentions here the right cheek. And here's why. If you're a right-handed man like most men have been throughout history in order to hit someone on the right cheek you can't do a Will Smith he, he got Chris Rock on the left cheek can't do a Will Smith you've got to do a backhander to get him on the right cheek and in that culture and particularly in the specific honour shame culture that Jesus lived in to be struck the back of the hand, to be struck on the right cheek was the ultimate insult. It was a way of saying, you are nothing. You have no honor. It's a way of belittling someone. It's what you do to a slave to remind them who's boss. A deep insult. So he's not just saying, well, should I pick right cheek or left cheek? No, he's saying deliberately, this is a right cheek issue. This is when you have been publicly shamed. 
And probably, again, if we take the whole sermon together and look at the immediate context, he's probably talking about the specific insult that people receive as his disciples. You're getting a backhand across the cheek because you love and follow Jesus. You are belittled. You are, someone described in a commentary I read, this is a, um, a heretic's slap. This is the kind of slap you give to a heretic who has left the true faith of Israel and is following this crazy rabbi Jesus. Remember he said, right in the immediate context, in verse 11 and 12, he said, you are blessed when they insult you. This is his expectation as he speaks to those disciples whom he's called, right? His expectation, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. That is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Make sense of what Peter, who's, remember he's sitting there on the mountain listening to all of this. Later on, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, he's writing to his own church who are suffering greatly because they're Christians. Like being isolated, tortured, imprisoned, sometimes killed because they are little, little Christs. And here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is how he counsels his church. He said, You're called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. He didn't do the eye for eye thing. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return when he suffered he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly there is a judge and he is observing every infraction every insult every backhand across the cheek he's the only judge who judges justly so, therefore we can follow Jesus' example, knowing that ultimately justice will be done. This is what Paul says to, to the Roman church as well. Remember in chapter 12, he says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Right, he's saying to this to Christians who are getting eaten by lions. While people laugh. Do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. This is how you respond to the heretic slap, to the insult that you receive on account of your 
confession of faith. There's a couple more forms of first century insults here that he's going to speak to. Verse 40 and 41. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So, again, first century, if you're a poor person, Jesus loved poor people. Loved rich people too. But he had like this specific burden for poor people to know that God loved them and that their state of finances wasn't a reflection of how much God loved them or their standing in his kingdom. If you're a poor person in the first century and someone sues you, either because you've done something wrong and they want to make it right, or they're just falsely testifying against you because that's what we do to Christians, it's funny. right? Either way, if you're poor and someone sues you, you don't have a lot to give them. There's no bankruptcy law. You can't just say, I've got nothing. So, No, you have to give them anything you've got. The shirt off your back. The one thing they couldn't take from you permanently was your cloak. In Palestine, in the first century, your cloak is like the most important thing to you. It gets cold at night in the desert. So your cloak is something that you wear during the day. It's something that you sleep in at night. Your cloak is like everything. So God actually says in his law, in Exodus 22, he says, if, you, if you're suing someone for their cloak, you can take it, but you've got to give it back at night time. That's actually in the law. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, right, return it to him before sunset. This is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I'm gracious. So because God is gracious, he makes provision in his law, even for the guilty ones, he should have their cloaks taken as collateral. He says, give it back to them at night time at least. Let them have a sleeping bag. And yet Jesus says here, if he takes your shirt, give him your cloak. Next form of insult, and this really would have like rubbed the salt into the wounds of every first century Jew, right? This is that extra mile thing. Remember, Israel is, has been subjugated by the Roman Empire, the great Roman Empire. They are ruling over them, taxing the snot out of them. The people of Israel just feel like completely oppressed, held down, held back by these Romans, these Gentiles, these pagans. And just to rub salt into the wounds, to add insult to injury, any Roman soldier, by law, if he's walking along, he's got his backpack on, there's 100 kilos of stuff in there. Anytime he comes across anyone, he can say to them, you're taking this pack for me for a mile. He can do it for a mile. That's the law. So even if you've just knocked off half an hour early on Friday afternoon and you're on your way to West Waters for a $7 pint, I know none of you guys would do this, but, you know, those people, right? Even, even if I'm, I mean, they're on their way, walking down, finished work, about to relax, Roman soldier comes across you, he can tell you, 
you're not going home. You're walking a mile that way with my stuff. A mile in that day was literally a thousand, like mil, mil, thousand, thousand steps. So you've got to walk a thousand steps. You can count them out if you like, and it's, but not a step sooner. You can then put the bag down and then walk all the way back to where you started. Jesus says, in that situation, you get to the thousandth step and then you start again. Do another thousand. Now, I think there's probably like he's got, Jesus has got some sort of practical outcome that he's looking for here. It's probably that he wants people to be astonished by his followers, like by their willingness to suffer just as he would suffer, right? In suffer injustice, suffer unjustly, unjustly, to do it willingly, to be marked by this kind of weird. Self-sacrifice. I think he probably wants those Roman soldiers or those first century Jews or anybody who sees, I think he wants them to go, what on earth is going on here? Like, who are you? Why are you like this? These crazy Christians. And we can see from the testimony of history, like this happened over and over again. People were like, who the heck are these people? Very often, it just made them insult them more, like morons. Might is right. Weakness is for slaves. Didn't make sense to the first century mind. So probably has some kind of practical outcome there. Like it's shocking, it gets attention, it causes people to ask why are they doing this. Maybe you've had your own experience of that as you've lived out a weird upside down Christian kingdom lifestyle in the midst of the the world. But I think probably more importantly... Jesus is interested in in what this kind of living does to my heart. Like what effect, what shaping, remolding effect does living this way have on my heart? That's the real purpose of it, I think. That's my hope. Like for us as a church, if we actually receive this as the word of God and we actually believe that the spirit of God moves through the authority of the word of God to change us, to make me more like Jesus, who I think is just the pinnacle of creation, like the greatest man who ever lived, the most fully flourishing human being, the most perfect image of God that's ever lived, like as he makes me a little bit, just a little bit, please God, more, but just even just a little bit more like him, I feel like that's the purpose of us gathering around this from week to week, right? We want to be more like this guy. We want to be more like what we are. We are image bearers of God and I want to be more and more a true reflection of who I am. Hmm. So I've started to think about these shocking words. Someone strikes you on the cheek, turn him the other one. 
right? These shocking words that are just like riddled throughout this whole sermon. I've started to see them like um, defibrillators. You know what I mean? Use a defibrillator to like shock someone's, like if someone's got a heart that's out of rhythm or a heart that's stopped, you can shock it to get it back into the right rhythm. I feel like this is what the, the purpose of some of these really strong, almost outrageous statements. It's to shock us. And the shock is meant to get us back in rhythm. Like our heart is out of sync with God's heart. Amen? Anyone feeling like they're right in sync with the Lord on everything that ever happens? Yeah, me neither. So he's saying these things. Remember, he's preaching, he's exhorting. His his purpose is to defibrillate us. Shock our heart back into rhythm, a kingdom rhythm. I don't think he really wants us to obsess over the minutia of his teaching. Like, what am I meant to do? Like, you know, he gets to verse 42. I don't know if we'll get there because I'm out of time. But, you know, don't, don't, like, give to everyone who asks you. Don't refuse. And then we're like, well, what if I'm in the city and someone is begging from me? But I think he might go and spend it on this or that. Or what if I don't have enough? Or what? Like, getting bogged down to the minutiae is what we tend to do. We're post-enlightenment people. We, we, think about, we, we think about things like they're machines with cogs and wheels and we're trying to... Like, I don't think he wants us to do that. I think he wants our hearts to be changed. On Friday, I went for a walk because it was Friday and that's what I do on Fridays. I go for walks. And... Uh, I was walking through this beautiful, this beautiful valley, this volcanic rock and uh, a river that had cut a, not quite a gorge, but it was definitely a, a deep valley through it. And I was walking along and there was a sign that said, please keep to the path, um, fragile vegetation. Now, here's a couple of ways that I could respond to that sign. And, and in, every, in every case, I'm obeying what it says, right? The first way I could respond is just by spending, this was, a ten, this was a 10K walk, right? So I could spend 10,000 meters cursing that law. I hate being told what to do. Why should I keep to the path? Just cursing the law the whole way through and thereby miss the entire purpose of me being there, which is to soak in as much beauty as I can. So I could go around just cursing it, right? Or I could go around that whole, that 10K walk, obsessing over what that law means. Like, just like making sure I do not even for a moment step out of line, right? Obsessing about this path, focused on the path, must not leave the path, and thereby miss entirely the purpose that I'm there, which is to soak in as much of God's glory as I can. 
Or the third way I could keep that law is simply by walking along the path, soaking in all of God's glory and beauty, magnificence in his creation, and echo the sentiment of the law because I too value and want to conserve the environment that I'm walking through. In each case, I've kept, I've done what the law told me to do, but only in the third case is my heart in sync with the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to conserve beauty. And if I believe the same, then I can fulfill that law joyfully. Does that make sense? I think it just about does for me. Jesus wants our hearts to be so reshaped by his words to us so that as we walk through the world, our heart is so in sync with the heart of God that we actually do live righteous lives. Whole body, heart deep behavior that accords with God's nature. Accords with God's kingdom. Accords with God's will. That kind of living is living that makes all of life all about Jesus. I've used up my time, but I don't want to just, I, I don't want to avoid that last naughty verse. All right, so again, verse 42, let's read it real quick. He says, Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Remember, read it in context. He's just given us all kinds of context for this. Cheek slapping, coat demanding, mile walking. As far as this applies to those situations where you're walking through the city and people are asking things from you, you need to do that work in the moment with the Lord, asking him for wisdom to direct you in each of those cases. In fact, that advice applies to everything that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why we desperately need wisdom. If we're actually going to walk as Jesus walked and lived as he lived, we need great wisdom. Should you give to that guy who's asking you for money? I don't know. Maybe. To the degree that it will diminish your inherent greed, desire to keep everything for yourself, that would be a good thing to do. Probably mitigate that a little bit. You also have to ask the question, like, is this a loving thing for me to do? Or am I enabling some kind of cycle of poverty? I don't know. Again, this isn't a dictionary that we go to and look up the answer for this or that question. Let me leave you with this. This is a a quote on that from uh, Jonathan Pennington, which I think just uh, summarizes. And this is not just for this passage, but for the whole sermon. This is ethical teaching. Jesus is an ethical teacher. He's more than that, but not less. 
So he says, with all, as with all ethical teaching, the practical outworking of these principles, even these specific illustrations of cheek turning, coat giving, mile walking, requires localised wisdom. Like your context, 2022, west of Melbourne, wife of one husband, mother of three children. Like localised wisdom, contextualised wisdom. These illustrations, he says, are just that. They are not to be applied literally and without wise exceptions. Jesus' teaching gives us a vision of virtue, of how to be in the world that accords with God's righteousness. But the working out of this in the individual's life is inevitably localised. This is wisdom. If you're not yet in a small group, get into one. This is where a lot of this wisdom is worked out. This week, as you meet together, these are the questions that you can ask one another. Go to the scriptures and find wisdom there for one another. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for this word. It it challenges us so deeply. It's sometimes painful. It's definitely shocking. I pray that you would use it to shock our hearts into kingdom rhythm and please bless us as we discuss these things uh, after church or around the table at lunch or in our small groups this week lord give us wisdom and make us more like your son we pray in jesus name amen